0: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 236, Diplomatic Offensive. When we last left the Continental Congress in episode 222, the delegates had received word that Spain had joined with France in the war against Britain. The delegates thought this would be the final nail in the coffin for Britain and that Congress could come to peace terms that would recognize American independence. I talked about the efforts by Congress to come up with a set of negotiable and non-negotiable terms on which to settle the war. With the entry of Spain into the war in 1779, many leaders hoped that Britain would be willing to bring the war to a quicker end. The fall of 1779 would prove to be a major shift in Congress's diplomatic relations with Europe. Earlier in the year, it had ended the three-man delegation in France. Originally, Silas Dean had gone to France on his own. He had been joined by Benjamin Franklin and Arthur Lee. Eventually, Congress recalled Dean over false allegations made by Arthur Lee, and Congress sent John Adams as Dean's replacement. But by early 1779, Congress had decided to give full authority to Benjamin Franklin in France, making the roles for Adams and Lee redundant. In late summer of 1779, France sent a new minister to America. French minister Conrad Girard who had served in that role for just over a year, had requested to return to France, citing health reasons. Girard had proven rather popular with the delegates, mostly working behind the scenes in private meetings. He had also developed a relationship with George Washington. But with the war in Europe growing larger, the diplomatic post in America was a bit of a backwater. Girard had also grown tired of the continuing fights over Silas Dean. Girard had made abundantly clear that the charges Lee had leveled against Dean were false. A big part of Lee's charges was that early French loans to America were actually gifts that did not need to be repaid. Girard stressed emphatically that these were in fact loans and did need to be repaid to France. While trying to remain neutral in what was generally considered an internal American political squabble, Girard was clearly a supporter of Dean's. While I discussed the Dean affair back in Episode 193, it's important to remember that that battle was still raging. Congress only finally dismissed Dean in August of 1779 from having to remain in Philadelphia for the hearings against him, and the parties were still fighting over compensation. Girard had been in the middle of that fight. He also was dealing with a host of other issues between the two allies that had led to some tensions. By late 1779, Girard had had enough. He remained on good terms with most leaders of Congress, but he was eager to get home. And while various factions in Congress were polite to him for purposes of maintaining the alliance with France, there were some in Congress, particularly the Arthur Lee faction, who were happy to see him go. As John Dickinson put it in a letter, quote, We have dismissed him with as honorable testimonial, respecting his public and private conduct as we could give. Girard would officially at least return to France with the good wishes of all of Congress and the American people. Girard's replacement, Anne César de Luzerne, had recently arrived in Philadelphia, taking over his duties. Luzerne came from a French noble family, he had spent most of his life in the military, rising to the rank of Major General. He had briefly served prior to this as a diplomat in Bavaria before being assigned to the United States in 1779. Luzerne was welcomed into Philadelphia society, and we'll get to his exploits in some future episodes. During the same period that Congress was transitioning to the new French minister, Congress also continued to focus on its other diplomatic initiatives abroad. One of the most important was selecting the person who would lead the direct treaty negotiations with Britain. The selection of a chief diplomat was a contentious one. As we saw, when Congress spent months debating the terms of a possible peace treaty, the delegates often did not agree and had widely conflicting interests. New England was focused on the border with Canada and the fishing rights off Newfoundland. The southern states were much more interested in their western border with Spain and the navigation of the Mississippi River. Whoever was chosen as the chief negotiator would have a huge influence on which of those interests received priority. The New England delegates wanted John Adams to receive the appointment. Adams had recently returned to Massachusetts from France after Congress gave full authority to Franklin to serve as Minister plenipotentiary with France. Adams's services were no longer needed in France, so he returned home on the same ship as the new French minister, Luzerne. Adams had returned to his private law practice near Boston, and he was also working on a new constitution for Massachusetts. Massachusetts was the one state that had not adopted a constitution since declaring independence. Adams and Franklin had not gotten along particularly well in France, The two men had very different styles of diplomacy. Adams tended to be all business, while Franklin understood that going to parties and being a part of the Paris social scene was an important part of the diplomatic process. Neither Franklin nor Adams liked Arthur Lee very much. Lee had also seemed to be disliked in most of the European courts that he visited. On top of that, many in Congress thought that Lee's false attacks on Silas Deane had created a diplomatic incident that had hurt relations in France. As a result, Lee would be recalled to America and not given a new position, but he did still have his supporters in Congress, and that remained a point of contention. Congress, as I said, voted to give Franklin full ministerial powers in France, so no longer would diplomatic relations be handled by a dysfunctional and divided committee. Franklin, and only Franklin, would be in charge of all major decisions in France. The recall of Lee and the appointment of Franklin, however, left a minority in Congress rather upset. New Englanders, and much of the Virginia delegation, tended to support Lee, especially in the ongoing dispute with Silas Dean. The fact that John Adams of New England was also losing his position in France rankled mostly this same minority within Congress. It was in this backdrop that Congress began to debate over a minister to open negotiations with Britain, and as usual, the delegates were divided. Six states wanted to select John Adams to be the chief negotiator. Five states wanted the outgoing president, John Jay, for the position. After some debate, the two sides reached a compromise. Adams would get the position as Minister Plenipotentiary to Great Britain to negotiate the terms of peace, and John Jay would get the consolation prize as being appointed minister to Spain. John Adams had not sought out the position to which Congress appointed him. In fact, he was very happy to be home in Massachusetts again with his family and working on the state constitution. But when he received the appointment, Adams prepared to return to Europe. He would sail back to France because, even though he was tasked with negotiating with Britain, the ministry in Britain had not agreed to receive an American delegate. In London, Adams was still a traitor to the crown and would be subject to arrest. Adams would have to get some diplomatic recognition in order to travel to Britain, and British authorities were not there yet. So, Adams was returning to France. After a return home of only about three months, Adams boarded the same ship that had brought him from France to Massachusetts for his return trip to France. Adams never made it to Philadelphia during his time in America for these few months, but he had received written instructions from Congress and dutifully returned to diplomatic service, leaving from Boston for France. Adams' return journey to Europe proved rather difficult. They managed to avoid any British warships, but the vessel that had carried him, the Sensible, sprang a leak pretty early in the trip, only a few days after leaving port. The crew had to man two pumps, day and night, to keep the ship afloat. Even Adams's son, John Quincy, had to take a shift at the pumps in order to keep from sinking. Given the ship's condition, they would be in no position to put up a fight or escape a British warship. The captain opted to avoid any British contact by sailing further south to Spain rather than their intended destination of France. The ship arrived safely in late December 1779. From there, Adams, along with his two sons, John Quincy and Charles, his aides, and the rest of the delegation, had to ride on mules through rocky and treacherous terrain over the mountains that separate Spain and France. Finally, after arriving in France, the delegation was able to board coaches for the rest of the ride to Paris. Adams finally arrived in mid-January 1780. During this same time, John Jay accepted his appointment as minister to Spain. As I said, Jay had planned to resign from Congress and return home to New York and resume private practice. Congress's decision to send him to Spain was met with mixed feelings. It would be a challenge, and being a minister would mean better pay than he would receive as a delegate to Congress, one of his reasons for resigning. But Jay had no diplomatic experience and was taking on a very difficult job. Spain still had not agreed to become an ally of the United States. Spain was allied with France, and France was aligned with the United States, and all three of the countries were at war with Britain. That did not mean that Spain recognized American independence. Because it did not. Spain and the U.S. fought a common enemy, but did not fight together. Spanish officers in America had instructions not to work directly with the American military. While Spain stood by its traditional ally, France, and certainly hoped to take advantage of the weakness of its traditional enemy, Britain, Spain was still reluctant to support an independent United States. We can't forget, Spain was the largest colonizer in the Americas. Supporting a precedent for American colonies to break away from their mother country and declare independence would destroy Spain's economy. Further, an independent United States might inevitably push further west, threatening Spanish land west of the Mississippi River. Congress had attempted to send Arthur Lee as a delegate to Spain in 1777 Spain had refused to receive him at that time, worried that receiving an American minister might provoke war with Britain. Spain had a lot to lose in a war, particularly with its American colonies. Wars were expensive and risky. Spain had been caught unprepared when the Seven Years' War began, resulting in its loss of Cuba and other territories. The Spanish also relied heavily on treasure ships full of silver and other valuables that were regularly shipped from America to Spain each year. Open war threatened the ability to transport that valuable resource. Spain had, of course, provided some covert military aid and also allowed American ships to use its ports throughout the empire, hoping that the ongoing rebellion would weaken Britain. But it was reluctant to jump into another war. Once Spain finally did enter the war in 1779 at the Practically the begging of France, it was still reluctant to get too close to the United States. Spain's primary focus seemed to be to use Britain's distraction to retake places like Gibraltar, Menorca, and the Floridas. So after Spain declared war in 1779, the governor of Cuba, Diego Jose Navarro, sent a memorandum to other Spanish officials in America trying to define Spain's relationship to the United States. Quote, There is no positive order of political basis for the United States of America to be seen or considered under any concept but that of neutrality, since, not acting as subjects of Great Britain, they do not deserve our hostility, and not openly being friends of the Spanish nation, they should not benefit from our war efforts. Thus you will observe with them their ships and their vessels the orders issued last November 6th limiting aid to them to what may be demanded by the right of hospitality. In other words, Spain and the United States were not enemies, but neither were they allies. The United States, of course, was overjoyed that Spain had entered the war against Britain, but the Continental Congress still had its own concerns about Spain. It did not particularly want Spain to regain control of the Floridas, which would put them in possible future conflict with the United States. Congress also had potential disputes over navigation on the Mississippi River. Of even greater concern to many delegates was that France's treaty with Spain recognized Spain's interest in fishing rights off Newfoundland, something that New Englanders wanted for themselves. It was in the fall of 1779, during the debate to send a minister to Britain, that Congress decided, once again, to send a minister to Spain as well. And, after giving Adams the post with Britain, Congress offered the diplomatic post with Spain to John Jay. Accepting the appointment, Jay submitted his resignation as President of Congress. In his place, Congress selected Samuel Huntington of Connecticut as the presiding officer. Huntington began his term in October, just after Jay's resignation. For his mission to Spain, Congress provided Jay with instructions. First, beg for money. Congress hoped to get a loan of $5 million. The Congress also hoped to acquire a port in Spanish territory on the Mississippi River and full navigation rights of the river. More broadly, Jay was to attempt a commercial treaty with Spain, similar to that which they already had with France, allowing trade between the two countries. Jay left for Europe only a couple weeks after his appointment. French Minister Girard was returning to France, and Jay would accompany him. Girard and Jay set sail for France aboard the Confederacy, a ship of the Continental Navy commanded by Captain Seth Harding. Jay's wife also accompanied him to Europe. The voyage did not get off to a good start. A storm hit the ship several days out, causing it to lose its main mast. The damaged ship was able to make it to the French island of Martinique in the West Indies, where Jay and Girard had to find new passage to France. The governor of Martinique provided them with space on a ship that was headed for France. Although they boarded it and crossed the Atlantic, In the end, the ship ended up sailing directly to Spain in order to avoid the British Navy. So, Jay arrived in Cadiz in January of 1780. The court of King Carlos III refused to recognize Jay's credentials. The Spanish court did, however, permit him to remain in Spain and to meet with some key officials in the government unofficially. I'll leave the details about Jay's years in Spain for a future episode, but Jay's career as a diplomat had begun. Meanwhile, Congress had one more important appointment to make that fall. In October 1779, Congress decided to send a delegate to the Netherlands. and They chose Henry Lawrence to be their first American minister to that country. The Netherlands was another tricky diplomatic situation. The Dutch Republic, as it was known, Was ruled by a group of nobility who essentially cooperated with one another on matters of national policy. In truth, by this time, the leaders of the local states, known as stadtholders, were all members of one noble family, the House of Orange, and by the 1770s, almost all the states were ruled by a single member of that family, William V. Traditionally, the Netherlands tended to ally itself with Britain in wars against Spain and France. In this case, though, the Netherlands had remained neutral. It did not formally recognize American independence and certainly had no interest in fighting alongside France and Spain. Since the rebellion in America began, though, Dutch merchants were selling arms and gunpowder to the colonies. Dutch ports received American ships. Dutch bankers had provided the Americans with loans. I mentioned in a recent episode that the Dutch had given protection to John Paul Jones after he captured the British ship Serapis and allowed him to repair and sail his new prize away from that Dutch port. So, even if the Dutch government officially remained neutral, it certainly tolerated a great deal of business that benefited the American cause. A Congress hoped to build on that and gain an actual alliance with the Netherlands. But the primary goal of Loren's mission, at least at first, was to secure some more cash. Congress hoped to secure a desperately needed loan of $10 million in specie to help shore up the economy at home and to continue the war effort. Dutch bankers seemed willing to underwrite such a loan, but it was going to take some negotiation. So, as I said, Congress appointed Henry Lawrence to that position in October, about a month after they made the appointments of Adams and Jay. Lawrence then traveled to his home in Charleston, South Carolina, to put his affairs in order before leaving for his new mission. He hoped to catch a ship to France in January 1780, but could not find one that was leaving Charleston. After a few months, he traveled to Wilmington, North Carolina, on word that a ship there was bound for France. That ship didn't work out either, but Lawrence's decision to leave Charleston, South Carolina, was a good one, because the British began to lay siege to the city, something that I will discuss in a future episode. By June of 1780, more than six months after his appointment, he found himself back in Philadelphia, still trying to find a way to get to Europe. And by this time, of course, with his plantations in South Carolina fallen under British control, Lawrence tried to resign his appointment, unsure how he was going to be able to support himself in Europe. Congress, however, rejected his resignation. Since he had been unable to make it to Europe, though, and since John Adams was already over there and without much to do until the British agreed to accept him as a diplomat, Adams went to the Netherlands in Lawrence's place in order to obtain the much-needed loans. In place of seeking loans, Congress encouraged Lawrence to begin his efforts when he would get over there with a treaty of amity and commerce between the United States and the Netherlands. It was not until August of 1780 that Lawrence finally found a small but relatively fast ship, the Mercury, to take him to Europe. The ship sailed up the coast just off Newfoundland in hopes of making a quick dash across the Atlantic. Several days out, a British warship spotted the Mercury and gave chase. While trying to outrun the British, Lawrence threw overboard most of his important papers that he had with him in order to avoid them being captured. One of the chests that he originally planned to keep was a chest that contained some private papers. He ended up throwing it overboard as well, but only after the British were practically on top of them. The chest did not sink as planned, and British soldiers were able to recover it. Among the papers in this chest was a draft treaty created by William Lee, who was Arthur Lee's brother. William Lee was serving as an American agent in Europe and Lee had worked with several Dutch officials, unofficially, to draft a proposed treaty. Neither Congress nor anyone in the Netherlands had ever received it, so it was not an official document of any kind. It was merely the product of discussion between a few men who were not really authorized to do anything. Lawrence had probably gotten it from Richard Henry Lee or Francis Lightfoot Lee to other Lee brothers who were then serving in Congress, but it really had no real importance because it was not considered an official document, even an official draft document, by either country. Even so, the British would use it as a basis to go to war with the Netherlands. As for Lawrence, he was now a British prisoner. Because he was not part of the military, he was not subject to any agreement regarding captured officers. So Lawrence was taken first to Newfoundland and then shipped to London, where he would serve time in the Tower of London awaiting royal justice as a traitor to the crown. Next week, though, King George III attempts to rally flagging political support in London to continue the war against his rebellious colonies. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thank you to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Normally, this is the time I would also thank Mike Hager for his support at the Robert Morris Circle, but I can no longer do that. For over three years, Mike has been a valued supporter of this podcast, first at the Purvey Council level, and then at the Robert Morris Circle, even going above and beyond the amount required for that level. This month, however, Mike joins the Alexander Hamilton Club as one of this podcast's top sponsors. There are only a very few people who have made the very generous pledge necessary for this top level, which helps to provide substantial support in helping me to keep this podcast freely available to all. I very much appreciate the support of everyone who contributes, but especially those who have the ability to make such a generous contribution you really have helped to make this podcast available to all. I've heard a complaint or two about the fact that I thank these top contributors every single episode, which can sometimes maybe be a bit repetitive, but these are the people who really helped to underwrite this podcast, and I really couldn't keep it running without them. So I will continue to thank them on each and every episode. I would also like to say that a few contributors have asked me not to thank them by name, or not mentioned that they upgraded their support, and of course I respect their wishes. But you know who you are, and I hope you know how grateful I am. Thanks also to Paul Wood and Benjamin Campen for one-time gifts via PayPal. I very much appreciate everyone who can make a contribution to support this podcast, whether it's an ongoing pledge or a one-time contribution. All that helps me keep this podcast free for those who cannot afford to help pitch in. I also wanted to mention that I am planning to attend the 9th Annual Conference of the American Revolution, which is going to take place in Williamsburg, Virginia, on March 18th through the 20th of this year, 2022. I'm not speaking or anything. I'm just going as an attendee. But there are lots of great speakers, and it should be a good time. So if anybody else out there can make it, I'd love to see you there. Go to americashistoryllc.com for more details on how you can register for the event. This week we covered the Continental Congress. We say goodbye to French Minister Girard and hello to his replacement, Luzerne. Girard would continue in government service upon his return to France. He served as Royal Praetor of Strasbourg. Gerard would also serve in the Assembly of Notables in 1787. As the French Revolution began, he continued to serve in various roles before illness forced his permanent retirement in 1789, and he died a year later. Luzerne would remain as French minister in America throughout the remainder of the war, returning to France in 1784, where he remained in the king's favor and received a title of nobility. Luzerne would go on to serve as France's minister to Great Britain, beginning in 1788 and remaining there during the early years of the French Revolution. He died while still serving in Britain in 1791. Also today we saw John Adams heading back to Britain, John Jay to Spain, and Ben Franklin getting complete control over diplomatic matters in France. We also see Henry Lawrence try to get to the Netherlands, but not successfully, and ending up in the Tower of London. Congress understood all too well that the more pressure European powers put on Britain, the faster Britain would want to end the war with America. As we've also seen, Congress was desperate for money to continue the war and tried to reach out to any possible sources of financial assistance. That was the real purpose of sending diplomats to Europe. If you're interested in learning more about the French alliance with the U.S. during the Revolution, This week's book recommendation is The American Revolution and the French Alliance by William C. Stitchcomb. This is a close look at diplomatic relations between the two countries over the course of the war. The book itself is relatively short, just over 200 pages, not counting notes and index, but covers diplomatic issues quite well. The book itself is an older one, first published in 1969. The author, Stitchcomb, was a history professor at Syracuse University for many years. He died in 2014. You can find the book The American Revolution and the French Alliance available as a used book on Amazon. There is also a free copy for viewing on archive.org. My online recommendation is an ebook also on archive.org called Dispatches and Instructions of Conrad Alexander Girard 1778 to 1780 correspondence of the first French minister to the United States with the Comte de Vergennes. This book is a comprehensive English translation of French diplomatic correspondence during the war, and it gives a good view of things from the French perspective. This copy was published in 1939 and, as I said, is freely available on archive.org. My question this week asks, was the term HMS used to describe British Navy ships during the American Revolution. The initials HMS, meaning His Majesty's Ship or Her Majesty's Ship, depending on the monarch ruling at the time, is used to describe British naval vessels. It has been used for quite some time, but was probably not used during the American Revolution. I have occasionally employed that term on this podcast to describe such ships and make clear to the modern audience that a ship did belong in the British Navy. However, consistent with contemporary writings from the time, the earliest known use of the term dates back to 1789, about a decade after the Revolution. I have seen some arguments that the term goes back much earlier, possibly to the reign of Charles II, but I have not found any contemporary documents that use that term during that period. Typically, prior to the adoption of HMS, Writers would simply use the name of the ship and assume that the reader would understand from context that it was a navy ship. In some instances, 18th century writers used the abbreviation H.B.M.S., which stands for His Britannic Majesty's Ship. So, if you want to be authentic for the time, you would probably use H.B.M.S., which dates back to at least 1707. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. There are links to all of my connections on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.